Oddities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm Rob. And this week on Cinemodities, in our music movie series, we finally have our first true Rob's choice. So uh, I, I should say that I think as we discussed in our Aristocats episode, there was definitely, you know, part of me choosing that one to some extent, but we called it a fan's choice. But this is one that I just, I, I figured we had to get out of the way. So before we get into it, I will say that uh, I have chosen this movie uh, because of, once again, a little bit, uh, this is less than from the Aristocats, but a little bit of a nostalgia bug I have with, with this film. As I was actually into it, around the same time, you know, I was kind of watching Aristocats and going through my grandmother's VHS collection when I was younger, this was among them. So, we are discussing none other than the 1986 version of Little Shop of Horrors. Bef- since I don't, I, didn't, I haven't seen the other one, there's a 1960 film, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, I haven't seen that in a long time, but I have watched it. I want to get this out of the way. In my research, Zach, I found out that the 1960s version was directed by Roger Corman. I never knew that. Yeah. It so, also had uh, Jack Nicholson in it. Yeah, yeah. And so, like I said, I've seen that one before. I, I like this one better, the 1986, directed by Frank Oz, none other than Yoda, of course. And since we had Aristocats, I had the nostalgia bug. I, I was, you know, thinking about Tenacious D for a while, but decided let's go with good old Little Shop of Horrors. I have a question for you, Zach, since I haven't watched the last thing that's in our list for music movies, what'll come out next Monday. I haven't watched that yet, but out of all of them, out of the four that we're discussing, would you say that this one is the the truest musical of them all? Musical versus music movie. Depends on how you want to define that. Sure, sure. Well, well, this one, I, I, I think that, you know, we've been talking about this this month so far where, you know, Aristocats had music in it, but it was kind of lacking, as we said. Vox Lux had music, but it was very integral to the story. Little Shop of Horrors is, you know, the music actually doesn't really matter, uh, you know, to the actual plot line. The plot line has nothing to do with music, but the music is how we progress through the plot. And I think I consider that a little more of a musical, still a music movie, of course. But is our next one like that? Do you know? It's very much a music movie, but it's okay. not. It's I wouldn't say it's a musical. Not okay. in the conventional sense of a musical. It's not singing in the rain or grease. Okay. So so this one, Little Shop of Horrors, is going to be our, our, our most musical. Yes, so, most musical. Okay. Right unless on, unless right I on. change my mind, we talk about high school musical next month. Next yes, week. Yes, everything, everything could, you know, uh, be thrown up in the air at any time. I'm well aware. <laughs> we might even switch the topic of this recording in, in the middle of it. <laughs> no, no. But anyway, like I've already mentioned, Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. The other thing we should say is that we specifically watched the director's cut of this movie. And I want to start by mentioning that because it plays directly into my history with this. As I've already mentioned, I was watching this when I was younger. Um, You know, my grandmother's VHS collection, it was something that, you know, they liked. My grandmother's name was also Audrey. And so there was a connection there with Audrey and Audrey 2 in this film. Um, But one of the things that I loved about this when I was younger was that kind of, you know, the plant eating humans and like wanting blood. That was really interesting to me when I was younger. So I latched onto it and I loved the music and all that stuff. But for as long as I could remember, I always thought that the ending was like a little too happy. You know, 
the, the theatrical release, I should say, back what I was watching when I was a kid. You know, the theatrical release, they beat the alien, they, they live happily ever after. And there's a slight twinge of, you know, like a the end type of thing at the, at the very finale, very final shot. But I always thought it was a little too, you know, happy, too schmaltzy, things like that. And I think it's, it's no surprise, it's well established, I prefer the darker endings. And that's exactly what we get in the director's cut. So, I went years knowing about this movie, always kind of disliking that ending. And then I think it was 2013, 2014, I found out that they released a director's cut, which gave me everything I wanted. And I absolutely love the changes they made in the director's cut. And we'll get to that, as I'm sure we discussed the movie. But I do have to say, Zach, because I'm not sure if you're aware, even though I was familiar with this movie for years and a grand portion of my life, I've only come into contact with the director's cut in very recent times. So that's kind of, you know, interesting for me to, you know, have such a history with the theatrical version and then get to see a version that I like better but haven't seen as much. So that's my history. We have to discuss the director's cut. I want to ask Zach now, because I don't think we've ever discussed uh, this movie, like, offline, off the podcast. Nope. Are you fa- are you familiar with this movie? Have you seen it? Was this a first for you? What's your background with it? No, I've never seen it before. I've been aware of it for God, at least ten plus years now. Mm-hmm. Pretty much it. I really, this is one of those weird movies I actually have like no history with. Uh, oh, okay. It, I, I've always known it was a musical. Yeah. Never, never knew it was directed by Frank Oz. It starred Rick Moranis. Never didn't know any of that. Didn't mm-hmm. even know that it starred Bill Murray until uh, he showed up in the movie, or even uh, Steve Martin. I had no idea. Okay, and yeah, John no. Candy. John Candy gets a cameo. Yeah, Christopher uh, Guest. Yeah, yeah. So there's our connection to This Is Spinal Tap, since we didn't cover there that. Go, we go, do go, have go, Christopher go. Guest in here. Fair <laughs> enough. So, uh, no, I really, this is one of those few times that Rob's going to have more of a nostalgic background for something, whereas I don't. Okay, okay, right on. Um, so... Interesting. I, um, you know, I, I kind of, like I said, since we never talked about it, I didn't really know what to expect from from you coming at this. But kind of great. We have a, a a new perspective on Little Shop of Horrors. And so, as we said, now Zach has only seen the director's cut. This is the only version you need to see, Zach. <laughs> I guess my question for you, a good way to phrase it, would be: um, Would you ever go watch the theatrical release? Uh, I oh no, okay, I watched this. Yep. That's what. And, that's exactly what I'm getting. At. <laughs> <laughs> yes, folks. I indeed did my homework, and I didn't have to turn it off halfway through and put Death Wish on either. Oh, nice. And, <laughs> that's always a plus when you can say that about a movie. I didn't yeah. have to turn it off and put Death Wish on in order to keep my sanity. <laughs> Sorry, Emily. But uh, no, like I watched it and I knew uh, like halfway through I was doing my research. I'm like, oh, there's an original ending. Or I, when Rob originally kind of like gave this to me, I kept seeing the words "director's cut" in parenthetical, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, if someone's gonna say director's cut. That means there's some other cut. And okay, for the record, I didn't. I didn't. Okay, I didn't dislike it, but I didn't really like it either. Okay. And as I was watching it, I'm like, the ending that is, I'm like, oh, I can see why audiences in like the summer of 1986 were like, this is a horrible ending. The director, the the original authors or the director's vision. And I'm like, which again, I guess a little bit more backstory on this, that it was a Roger Corman uh, film that then became an off-Broadway stage production that became a major motion picture. And then obviously it became a Broadway hit after that too it's weird kind yeah. of, it kept jumping between mediums and kind of uh hard uh, what garnering more and more success each time it kind of bopped around yeah um 
again, the people who the 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 okay, oh what's the name of the people? I guess the creators of the Broadway show, Alan Menken and Howard Howard Ashman. Mm-hmm. Every, if you don't know them, speaking to the audience, uh, you should. They're the ones behind The Little Mermaid, uh, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast. And I'm watching this because at first, when the credits started uh, rolling, the very beginning of this, I'm like, "Oh, like I see like a David Geffen production." I'm like, yeah. "What?" And then I saw obviously uh, Mankin and Ashman. I'm like, "Oh my god!" And I saw Frank Oz, and I'm like, "Good lord!" I'm like, <laughs> "This is this is the antithesis to a cinemati. This is like you can't get any more commercial on paper than this." Oh yeah, <laughs> like good lord, David Geffen. It's like, oh my lord, might as well be produced by Steven Spielberg. And, which oddly enough, Steven Spielberg almost produced this. Yeah, I, I read that too. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh god! And so like, I'm watching this, and again, I, I didn't really have any preconceived notions going into this. And I'm like, okay, I get why this is like one of those things in the same realm as like a Rocky Horror, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, like it's weird, like it is really weird, but it has like this cult following to it. Yeah. And I, that was another fun thing. I kept watching this, being like, well, which is which is the weirder film? Like, is this or Rocky Horror weirder? Because like both of those films are like by no both of these are non-conventional, yet at the same time they do have like a, a mass audience appeal, which is almost inexplicable. Mm-hmm, definitely, I guess I guess this one's a little bit more explainable because you do have people who worked on it that would later become extremely commercial. Yeah. Uh, whereas Rocky Horror, really, all they have is like what a couple people here and there. Otherwise, Rocky Horror still is kind of in its own kind of uh, corner of, of the movie world or, or yeah, culture. Yeah. This movie has everything that I, I claim to say I want. Again, it's got it's got a clever oh god clever performances. It's got oh god special effects, practical special. Oh god, I've never seen a special effects film done so well practically. Yeah, it's got everything I say I want. It's got irreverent humor. Yet for some reason, it just didn't click with me. I don't know why. It just like everything I, I say I want is here. Yet for some reason, it just didn't work out. <laughs> okay okay interesting uh you don't get your giggle back because you got uh, we, oh, we gave okay. you exactly what you wanted if you don't like it you know you, you don't get that giggle back <laughs> no okay interesting um i i guess you know that's maybe we can you know maybe uncover why it didn't click with you for for whatever reason as we discuss more of it um but but you know you mentioned that kind of commercial aspect to it and that's something that, you know, I definitely have noticed watching this more in recent years. You know, there's like I feel like, you know, when I watched this as a kid, I was much more intrigued by the concept of, you know, like alien plant eating humans, that type of thing. Whereas now where, you know, that's just kind of, oh, it, that that is Little Shop of Horrors. I was able or I have been in the last few years to be able to watch this more for kind of, you know, that production value and stuff like that. And and you're you hit the nail on the head. You know, all these people that went on to be so insanely commercial it's it's kind of like I have so many notions about them now that I find it difficult not to kind of see them in this movie too. Oh yeah, definitely. Because and to be fair, like yes, like Rick Moranis, and he already was a name. I can Ghostbusters really kind of made him into a thing. Yeah, yeah. And then he'd later go on obviously like Honey, I Shrunk the uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Honey, I Shrunk <laughs> the Kids. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it. And Steve Martin, at that point, everybody knew Steve Martin. Everybody knew Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the some, some of the smaller names are still kind of niche in their own right. It, it's weird because I, I, well, I heard that like, oh, like, I want to see how much money this made in 1986 because this movie's never talked about in a box office lens. Okay. And I looked at it, and it's, I think it made like around 39 million, which which isn't great for a film mm. that apparently cost like 25 million back in like the mid 80s. That's not oh, a like, don't get me wrong, it made money eventually between like things like home video, 
Uh, it made money, but like kind of like even like with inflation, it's only around like ninety million. Okay. Which is something like this, I think it would be still considered a disappointment. Maybe it wouldn't be the end of the world, mm-hmm. but it'd be like, oh, like this should have done a lot better. And whereas, like I imagine, if this if, let's pretend this didn't exist in the mid eighties, if this were to come out today, I think you'd automatically get to like a hundred and fifty million dollars. Like this would have been something like another what was the movie called? Uh, uh, the Greatest Showman. With, okay. with Hugh Jackman, where it's like another like musical movie that's about like P.T. Barnum, but it's very, very sanitized. It's not risque by any means. Yeah. And it's got that weird sort of like, oh God, like offbeat wholesomeness. Yeah. That people yeah. want. People don't want traditional, but they want offbeat wholesomeness. Yes. And and that's like, oh, okay. Like I could I could see this working now more days than it did back in the 80s. And that goes and that ties into why I think the 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 original ending doesn't work. And by original I mean the okay, how how are we going to differentiate this? Cuz they've changed the end. It's like they originally had the original ending, then they mm-hmm. changed it for a theatrical release, then they changed it for the Blu-ray. Yeah. <laughs> we got the we have ending A and we have ending B. Yes. Um I've I've only ever known it as the director's cut. I mean when I say I've only ever known it as is like when I when I, you know, got this that's what it was titled as and that's what it's just stayed titled as in my collection um so that's what i've always called it but you know there's i think there's like the happy ending and the bad ending you know kind yeah. of uh it's like a choose your own adventure book do the plants win or not <laughs> oh yeah yeah it's definitely it's, it's the commercial ending versus the uh the, the the satisfying story ending yeah yeah exactly exactly Interesting. Yeah, and so I want to bring up, you mentioned in there, you know, um, the offbeat wholesomeness. I think that's a good way to put it. I definitely picked up on that in this movie. That kind of, you know, I, I thought of it more as like a goofy sort of charm. Like there's a goofiness to this movie, but it's charming in its own right. Like it, it has that kind of, you know, offbeat wholesomeness. Because it is, you know, for the most part until the ending, this is definitely somewhat wholesome, this movie. At least with the relationship between Rick Moranis and Audrey. Um so yeah, it, it's interesting that, you know, I this movie has stuck with me, whereas I feel like other movies I liked when I was a kid and I, you know, we could classify as offbeat wholesomeness, I've kind of rewatched and disliked because of that wholesomeness aspect. But I don't really have an issue with it here. Maybe because it's set against the backdrop of, you know, evil aliens, that type of thing. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, no, because again, I, I had no background with this. So I don't, unfortunately, I don't have any sort of like philosophical perspective I've been sitting on for a decade. Mm-hmm. So no, because again, I, like I do, like I did with the Aristocats, what I do with other things. I go and listen to like other podcasts, YouTube videos, just trying to get a gauge of like what my opinion is compared to uh, others out there. And someone was comparing the the oh god the 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 director's cut ending versus the theatrical cut ending, mm-hmm. and they're like the theatrical cut ending is just it's 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 a happy ending just for the sake of the studio. It doesn't pay off on the whole themes of the film that Rick Moranis is doing all these horrible things, and yep. he eventually gets his just desserts. And they're like, well, this is the studio. Like, not everything in life is a is a happy ending. And this person was throwing around terms that just weren't applicable for this sort of thing. Like, they're applicable in the same way. Like, if you try, it's like when kids write essays in high school and they go to the thesaurus and they plug in a word that's just not like really it doesn't fit at all. But like, it, it, yeah. it fits. 
in the general emotion or vibe they're going for, but doesn't work in the structure of the sentence. Like it's like, oh, it's a hedonistic en- ending versus an uh, oh god, a benevolent ending. And I'm mm. like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like a hedonistic <laughs> ending. What the hell are you talking about? And but no, it's so, like they're talking about it on the lens of like, oh, like Rick Moranis gets his just desserts. Like he's paid. Like he murders Steve Martin, the dentist. Mm-hmm. He murders the, the 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 flower shop owner to to keep this facade going. And then he, he gets a happy ending. That's not how it works. He needs his comeuppance. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I think I think a lot of people are missing. And yes, obviously, the, the original uh, director's cut ending, the studio gave them a couple attempts to make that work. Apparently, they did two test screenings. Okay. And Frank Oz has been very, from what I was able to read, been very candid about what happened at those test screenings. Apparently the, the, the audience loved the film for the first test screening and they got to the ending and it killed the entire vibe of the movie. He claims that it got the worst uh, test results an ending can possibly get. Mm. Like it was a definition of a bullet, bullet to the head of a movie. If they were going to include that ending. Okay. And then they apparently, apparently he begged and pled, pled with the studio to do uh, another test screening and the exact same thing happened. Same exact result. Uh. People, people were eating the movie up. And then pretty much, again, the audience is kind of like dissolved at the, at the ending. And there's a bunch of stuff coming. I think Frank Oz makes some weird sort of like analogy or comparison. Like, oh, during a Broadway play, when the actors die, at the end, they show up during the curtain call. Everything's all right. But when you're watching a movie and a character dies, that's it. They're dead. And it's like, <laughs> no, unless the audience <laughs> is a bunch of three-year-olds. It's like, yeah. that, doesn't make, that doesn't make sense at all. It's, it's media. It's, or sorry, it's a... Uh, yeah, it's media. It's fiction. It's like, like, what is this thing that you just because a character dies in the movie, it sours the audience? I'm like, no, people didn't like the ending because that's the, okay. I watched the theatrical ending. I found it on YouTube. Okay. And apparently, from what I've read, everybody hates a the theatrical ending. Everybody despises it. It's the worst thing that's ever happened, despite the fact that it's been pretty much the sole ending tied to this movie for 25 years. Yep. Yep. Um, I watched it. I preferred it because it wraps up the plot a little bit too neatly. That's really yeah. my only, that's the only negative I'll have is that like oh all kind of all hell is breaking loose, and then like oh he electrocutes it and it dies. It's like oh okay, and then they live happily ever after. Like I'll get it. Like again, nice bow. It goes too quickly, but it makes sense because going back to that first YouTube video guy I was talking about, where he's like oh hedonistic versus like ambivalent ending. And it's like, well, you got to look at the context. And he was saying that, like, oh, Rick Moranis gets his just desserts. And it's yeah. like, no, Rick Moranis isn't killing these people because he likes murdering people. He's not doing it for selfish gain. Yeah, he's exactly. doing it because he's trying to. He's, he, he, he lives on Skid Row. The woman he loves lives on Skid Row. And at that point, the manager's dead. But it's like he's doing this to give her a better life. Mm-hmm. He's not doing it so he could become wealthy off of it. He's not making any money off Audrey, too. And and that's why it's like oh having him have a happy ending because he does he pays the price he kills the thing that was sustaining any sort of prosperity and notoriety basically his ticket out of uh, Skid Row was Audrey too mm-hmm. and by killing it he cuts that off which I guess in a way you could say that maybe a better ending for this instead of them living happily ever after it could have been them kind of sitting in the rubble being like well, what are we going to do next? And it's like, well, I've heard there's some really good miracle grower. I heard there's some really great gardenias in the next block over. Yeah. <laughs> like, like maybe you have an ending like that where it's more like a bittersweet ending. Like we did the right thing, but what's next? Yeah. But then they're just back to where they started almost. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I get to, but I think killing them and then having Audrey, all the Audrey twos go well, at that point. How many Audrey, Audrey's two through 15 is yeah. go through and just like, like, like again, I, I like, 
again, the special effects of that sequence of the director's cut are spectacular. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't get, I, I could watch a sequence of the Audrey two eating the subway tr- or the elevated train all day. I, yeah, I, that I, is awesome. Yeah. Oh no. Like, it's great. It's great. The, the, the director's cut ending is fantastic filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think as an ending, it's any more satisfying as them living off in the suburbs together. Okay. Okay. Fair. That's understandable. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that was the effects in this movie. That I love the puppet for Audrey too. The giant plant, like all the stages of it. It's just so much fun to watch. Oh yeah, oh no, special effects in this, like it's just it's mind blowing. And you definitely see that because it's it's Frank Oz, who is part of the Henson Company. I think mm-hmm. the Henson Company worked on this. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. Yep. And it, like it's mind blowing. Like it's again just the idea that like forget about the comparison between practical and CGI effects. Like obviously this would never get made today. Mm-hmm. But like you look at it, it's like oh my god, that's a real thing. Like that was a physical thing that people could touch, and it had to be designed from the ground up. And there was no computers to have them test what things would work, other things wouldn't. Yeah. Someone had to sit there with like actual physical materials and be like, okay, this is what. Again, like just watching its lips smack together. Oh yeah, it, it's it's weirdly hypnotic. Audrey too is just a is a a engineering cinematic feat. Is just like again, it's worth the price of admission. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> and that's why nice, I, right that's why I think it's again. Uh, I, I like to think I have my finger on the pulse of what's considered a cult movie and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And it's weird how this movie, like again, everybody talks about like RoboCop as being like the the great oh god the the grand poobah of all like visual effects in movies. And I mean that not the character RoboCop. I just mean the the film itself between like Ed Two O Nine, the Blood sure. Squibs. And I look at this, and I know, yes, for the most part, Audrey 2 is the special effect. But I don't know how like we consider all the greatest special effects of all time. We, we don't consider this up there with like the original trench run in Star Wars or mm. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, I, I really don't get how this is not in the same pantheon or why it's not considered. Because I, I, I didn't know how extensive the special effects were for this until I actually watched it. That's a good point. I never thought about it that way because you're right. You never... This this uh you know Little Shop of Horrors never comes up in any of those discussions or at least it's not even mentioned that yeah I've never thought about it that way but I I totally agree that it should be yeah it's and I get it maybe it's because it's just that one aspect of it and because it's a musical it kind of gets put to its own kind of uh, uh partition where it's like oh it's a it's a musical mm. it doesn't really have any role like compared to two thousand one or Star Wars oh. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, you know, might lose some attention because it's it seems like it's something that's uh I don't know, a lesser art form or something. Yeah, yeah, that's it's strange. I don't agree with that absolutely, but sure, that's a, definitely an explanation. Cuz even like I was like, <laughs> wow, yeah, it really is. Cuz even as like as I was reading for this, it was like, oh, like when they first started like filming Audrey 2, the puppet, and they realized like however the voice syncing with whoever I forget who does the voice for Audrey 2. And because however they were doing it, like the, the mouth wasn't sinking properly. They couldn't they couldn't operate the puppet fast enough to get like the really kind of just like quick talk mm-hmm. that it does. And so what they had to do was actually speed up the footage of Audrey too. So you would get that like really kind of like embellished movement of, of its mouth. Oh. And in order for that to work, obviously, the actors couldn't like act in real time. So they had to coach the actors to slow down their movements so when the footage was sped up, it would look appropriate. Wow, I did not know that. And that is such a cool concept. And I'm trying to think uh, of these scenes. And I, I don't think I, I can remember or have ever picked up on anywhere where that's noticeable. 
yeah, and that's one of the, again. This is another testament to the filmmaking behind. Like I said, the filmmaking behind this is infinitely, I think, more interesting than the film itself. Because like, <laughs> I, I can't. T- I, the only musical numbers that stood out for me in this, or actually, the only one that stood out for me, was the Steve Martin one. Like, that's the only like. That's like, a great one. He, he's the only character in this that I found even slightly amusing. Like, like okay. I don't. I guess I'd say I don't like Rick Moranis as an actor. Like, I know like people are like, Rick Moranis, come back. We need you. And I'm like, good. <laughs> stay in retirement. We don't need you, Rick Moranis. Uh, uh, yeah, that's. I guess I, I love his part again. The sequence with Bill Murray. Like, oh, I, that's that's got to be my favorite scene in the movie. That's such a great like contra. Uh, uh, contrast between someone who's like I love to cause pain and who loves to receive pain, <laughs> and then when they when he, when Steve Martin realized that Bill Murray is enjoying the drilling, he's like, "Get out!" He's like, "What's wrong?" He's like, "Get out of my office!" And then when Bill Murray leaves, he goes, "You sick freak!" <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> oh, it is because like again, and that's why uh, going back, to, I know Rob and I kind of talk about this a lot with movies. It's like whether to spoil a movie for someone. And mm-hmm. Rob is very firmly in the camp of spoil it for me. Yeah, and I, I'm, in, I'm and I'm kind of the opposite. It's like, like I, I'd rather I'd rather be in the dark, unless sure. it's something that's going to upset me. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean upset me like as in like uh like uh upset me emotionally. I mean like it's gonna make me angry because it's like oh that's not how it should work out. And like if I would have known that was coming, I would have analyzed it a lot. But like I didn't like I knew Bill Murray's things. I read something. It's like, oh, Bill Murray has like a great cameo in this. I'm like, okay, neat. Like at this point, it wouldn't surprise me that Bill Murray kind of got around because it's now everybody knows Bill mm-hmm. Murray doesn't like Bill Murray doesn't have an agent. Bill Murray has like a one eight hundred phone line and you like <laughs> pitch you pitch movie ideas to it, and if he likes it, he calls you back. <laughs> that's great. a real thing. That's a real thing, by the way. That's not an exaggeration. Look it up. Oh, Bill man, Murray I didn't doesn't know that. have an agent. Yeah, you I got to. Uh, I got to get on that level. <laughs> yeah, apparently that's kind of like a joke. Like if you, like, it's like a joke in the Hollywood. Like, who has the one eight hundred number? Um, but no. So like, I I didn't know that was coming. So like, you see that scene kind of begins. He's like in the waiting office, and like like a kid comes out with like, oh god, he's got like the the coat hanger like braces, yeah. and it's like, did it hurt? <laughs> yeah, but that but that's to be expected. <laughs> yeah, but they're supposed to take half your jaw out during that. Yes. And it's, and it's, oh, it's, it's so awesome. Hey, does that mean they're finished? My turn? Sent. What happened? What did you tell me everything? Okay. Well, they have to do that to remove the jaw. Ah, consider yourself very, very lucky. Next! It's me, Arthur Denton. I'm next! Nurse! Hmm? Does, uh, that have an appointment? Ask it. I'm off duty. I've been saving all month for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. And the thing, fun thing about it, that scene starts to play out. Like he's in the dentist chair, and obviously, this point we've we've firmly established Steve Martin's character mm-hmm. between the fact that he's he's a woman beater, he's a sadist, and it's like you go through this, and, he, and Bill Murray goes to the chair. And he's like, and it's like, he, obviously he's, he's getting aroused by all the different like, uh, instruments that Steve Martin's taking out. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, again, it's, again, it's weird because 
that sort of humor today is just now being broached. Like mm-hmm. I can, I, you could, I, can, I there's probably God, there's probably some stupid Thirty Rock scene or something like that where Tina Fey has gone into an office or a dentist office and something like that has played out. I would either okay. that or Parks and Rec or The Office. Sure, one of sure. those three had to have had some level of this where one of the main characters goes into a dentist as a state, like the dentist like chases him out, going, "Get out of here, you sick pervert." Yeah. Um, that's had to have happened. I, I some I know I know a couple weeks ago I complained call people stupid for liking the office. Um, if that's happened, please let us know. I, yeah. Your stupid your stupidity will come in handy. Once again, I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, but in 1986, there was nothing like this. Yes, exactly. Or at least not on a mainstream level. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that that's part of the reason why you know I think it's that still is you know I love that when I was a kid that whole concept of you know the. The, the dentist, the evil dentist or whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, but like, as I've gotten older watching that scene, I definitely agree where I, I think it stands out to me because it is so strange, maybe not strange, but it's so kind of, you know, unique uh, to seeing uh, things like that, you know, from that day and age. Um, and kind of, you know, taking that and juxtaposing it with that offbeat wholesomeness that we already talked about, that, that makes it like, it embellishes a little bit more. Like it puts that perfect accent on it that makes it work so well, I think. It definitely does. And I guess again, you keep in mind that like this was the mid eighties. This is, this is Reagan's America. You didn't have anything raunchy on TV. Uh, the culture, again, for the most part, you didn't have things like this in the culture. And again, it's the idea that even nowadays you have a sadist meeting a sadist and what would happen. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. Like that's, again, it, it, it's a cute premise. And that kind of shows you too, that again, if you, again, knowing what would eventually happen with, uh, Howard Ashman and, um, Alan Merkin, again, the, again, the, God, a couple of years later, they get hired for Disney. Yep. And they're doing yep. a little mermaid. And it's like, okay, like you can see where like these sort of people and their talents would eventually, it's like, it's kind of like, oddly enough, it's the James Gunn thing. It's like, oh, they go from working for schlock and they eventually end up working for a, a, one of the, the Titans of media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. works because they have, the, they have those ideas, but they know how to rein them in just enough that everybody can appreciate them to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's the fun thing about that. Bill Murray, Steve Martin Holt bit is that there's nothing raunchy in that. Yeah, like it, exactly. It's, it's it's like the uh, the, was it the Seinfeld episode, the contest where they all have to decide whether they're like like how long they can they can go being the master of their domain. Oh, it's yeah. Like, you, you can be raunchy, but the cleverness of it is the fact of not being blatantly raunchy about it, and that's where we've we've lost any sort of uh, oh god in today's culture. There's no such thing as veil, veiled comedy uh, yeah. or uh, subtext against South Park, and it's just like, South Park. Uh, oh god, what else is there? Everything's just in your face. Mm-hmm, Nothing can be definitely. subtle anymore. And I think I think that's part of the charm of this too is that it does have subtlety to its humor, and that's weird considering the fact that that the uh, the antagonist of the film is a giant Venus flytrap. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Definitely, it's weird, it's weird how a movie can be over the top yet be subtle at the same time, and it's that is what kind of makes this unique. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> While we're on the topic of Steve Martin, um, I love I love his performance in the movie. That scene with Bill Murray is great, but you know, like you said, the song where it's introducing him. Uh, just some of the some of the lines in that are awesome. The what the, it's revealed that in one of his like dental offices, he has a, a closet that's solely a shrine to his mother. <laughs> like it's it's great, you know, because it has that that goofiness to it, you know. From and it, it's awesome. Somewhere in heaven above me, I know, I know that my mom was proud of me. Oh, mama. <laughs> 
I'm a dentist. I don't know if you picked up on it, but it's it's one of the scenes uh, with Steve Martin. It's when him and uh, Seymour, Rick Moranis, first meet. Because I think Rick Moranis and Audrey are closing up the florist shop. And he's Rick Moranis is out, like, taking out the trash or something. And he hears, like, laughing and a motorcycle revving. And Rick Moranis kind of looks around. And then Steve Martin's motorcycle comes into frame at the top of the frame and it's just like he was flying and he landed yeah. next to Rick Moranis. Okay, that stood out to you? That is yeah, I picked so up on that. crazy to me. Like, I, I just, for some reason, because of course, after Steve Martin gets off his motorcycle, the first thing he does is inhale nitrous oxide because we should mention he's a dentist getting high on his own supply of nitrous <laughs> oxide. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so, so I like to think that there was some kind of, you know, imagining like a... I'm thinking of like a Wicked Witch of the West type of thing where, you know, Rick Moranis doesn't see them yet, but Steve Martin is this evil character is flying around on his motorcycle somewhere. And instead of cackling, he's laughing from all the all the laughing gas he's ingesting. And there's something very fantastical about it to me. And I love that kind of that feeling of that scene. But but once again, it, it adds to that kind of goofy atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that definitely is. Because because not to go back to get the harp on Steve Martin. But it's like even how he's again because we, we keep hearing about him because again we, we don't know about we keep hearing about the fact that obviously we were first introduced to Audrey mm-hmm. she has the uh, the she got the, the bruise under her eye and it's like oh god and like like what couple like couple like it's also the next day she has some other bruise or some other blemish oh yeah her how arm her. is in a sling eventually yeah yeah and you have all this you're like oh god what is this guy doing what kind of creep is he and again, I again I went into this fully blind. I didn't really didn't know what to expect. Okay. And so you eventually see him. Like he's in the um he's he's wearing his leather jacket. And you're like, oh, he's supposed to be some like just generic like greaser. Again, he, he's a generic woman beater. And uh, he's, he's singing when he's on the motorcycle, he's singing about he's like, when I was young, I would kill cats and I would, you know, burn animals and stuff like that. And one day my mama said I'd find a talent that I could, you know, I could excel in. And then that's when, you know, he's off the motorcycle, he goes into the building and just He's like, oh, I'm a dentist, and he pulls off the leather jacket, and it's great. It's such a great reveal. When I was younger, just a bad kid, my mama noticed funny things I did, like shooting puppies with a BB gun. I'd poison guppies, and when I was done, I'd find a pussycat bashed its head. That's when my mama said, What did she say? Oh yeah, because like, you expected again. This, this like, I know this is the condom. It was the magic term last year and the year before, but uh, subverting expectations. Yeah, again, there you, you expect him to be working like I don't know. It's like a butcher, like in a meat plant. He's the one who like does the thing. He like kills the cows or the livestock, mm-hmm. and it's like oh, you expect or he's like I don't know. He does something really like grotesque. And it's like oh, he's a dentist, of course, <laughs> of course he's a dentist. I'd like to be a, a dentist. <laughs> and yeah, like, like you said, he pulls the leather jacket off of him. He's wearing the the doc, the dentist fatigues, and it's like, oh god, like yeah, it's clever because you really you don't expect it at that point. And then even when he's being when uh, like you said earlier, when Audrey's introducing him to uh, Rick Moranis, and he keeps doing all these things, he's like, "This is my boyfriend." I forget his name. He's like, "What's my name?" Oh, uh, Doctor. 
doctor yeah, so, this yeah. stuff. And, and it's like he says something, and it's like, uh, and she's like, he's like, full title, uh, uh, DDS. And it's like, oh yeah, it's, it's all again. It's, it's the small things though, but it really does add up in the end. Yeah, I, I love that when you know he's, he's he says something. He like he's talking to Rick Moranis, and then Audrey says something, and he goes. Like you're a chatterbox tonight, and he's like, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, doctor." <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so it gets set up because later on it's like um, it, it's it they don't show it, but I think it's implied that like Audrey falls off of the motorcycle while he's riding it, and he doesn't stop. Like he he gets off the motorcycle and waits for her to catch up, like, <laughs> and she's running down the street, and there's this one shot of Audrey like running, you know, in the heels with her arms up. And he's like, come on. He's like, come on, woman, get over here. I don't want to have to wait for you. And she's way in the distance of this shot. And she's like, I'm coming, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's so it's so funny to me. Stupid woman, Christ, what a friggin' scatter brain. I'm sorry, doctor. I'm sorry, doctor. <sighs> I mean, you know, I guess this day and age, you know, maybe. We shouldn't be saying that we uh, find a domestic violence situation this funny, but man, it, it hits the nail on the head. <laughs> but that's that's one thing too that like you look at this, and as we what we do now is we judge everything of yesteryear by today's standards, <laughs> and, that, and that's definitely not problematic in the slightest. Oh well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like like, it, like our, I wonder like it's part of the reason why nobody talks about this anymore. Is it because of the fact that like like you can't. Uh, you can't laugh at this. I, I think so. I think, you know, there's that, there's the, you know, it's, it's steeped in that, you know, 60s kind of culture. And, and that's what the movie plays with, not only with, you know, the things we're discussing in the story, but with the set pieces and stuff when they have to do, you know, musical numbers. Like, uh, there's that one with all the secretaries in the office when Rick Moranis is, you know, getting magazine covers and, and radio deals and stuff like that. And, and I think that that is definitely part of it. You know, the people who want to, like we said, use past standards to judge current product you're you're going to run into that problem and you know if if they think that is an issue then sure that could totally be a reason why this kind of falls by the wayside yeah because that's what because i know like a couple times i was watching this and i know the sequence that like was it i forget who has the dream sequence like is it rick Mor it has to be rick moranis that he's imagining his future with audrey and it's like the white picket fence the green oh lawn, that's a, the so that's actually audrey's audrey's oh, that's, song. yeah she it's audrey's that. okay and i it's funny i've always known that there's a skit in family guy oh, oh, where, yeah. where, where yeah. herbert is imagining that but it's chris yes and i remember watching like oh this is like a really clever bit and i watched little shop of horrors and i'm like oh wait they literally just ripped off yeah. that entire sequence like yeah. beat for beat, there is no imagination there. It is Lily just plugging in? Other than the fact, it's like, oh, it's a pedophile in Chris. I cook like Betty Crocker, and I look like Donna Reed. There's plastic on the furniture to keep it neat and clean in the pine soul-scented air somewhere that's green. Um, there's really no creative imagination there. It's just ripping yeah. something off. I'm glad you bring sale. that up because I, I I remember when I like saw that episode of Family Guy way back when, and it was like, oh, they're doing the Little Shop of Horrors song, but with you know the Herbert and Chris. And so I was like, okay, like I get it. I'm like, I'm glad they're referencing Little Shop of Horrors because I love it, but well, exactly like you said, there is no creativity there. It's and and it's amazing. Every time I actually watch either of them, it blows me away 
that it's it is literally the same like they just animated every single frame of that song in this movie i cook like betty crocker and i look like donna reed there's plastic on the furniture to keep it neat and clean in the pine soul scented air somewhere that's Yeah, it's disappointing. <laughs> good old, good old Family Guy, right? So, so yeah, you know that that kind of uh, Steve Martin and the relationship. Absolutely, you know, it's it's funny. It's played funnily, uh, or to be comical as well. I guess that's something. If you haven't seen this, you know, it's definitely not like a very serious domestic violence scene, and where Zach and I are just like, she's calling him doctor. It's great. <laughs> like it's oh, definitely played well, to be comical. Oh yeah. Hey, do we have? We don't really see her ever really abusing her do we we don't ever see him doing that there's only one shot where we see him hit her but it's in silhouette okay so it's like they go into yes steve Steve martin literally she like goes as soon as she gets to the door of the apartment steve martin goes is the door open yet (laughs) (laughs) and then when they get inside he like hits her and rick moranis is watching her through the curtain and so you only see it in silhouette but that's the only one time yeah but even still, it's not like directly we see her getting beat up like in the flesh. It's not like yeah. it's it's not Watchmen where like no spelt Y E S. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's not that. It's not that level of it's like oh my god. The dentist said oral. <laughs> <laughs> A joke that nobody will get because we still haven't released that L's episode. One day, one day they'll be able to listen to the Elves episode and then come back and listen to a bunch of our older catalog and it'll all make sense. <laughs> if anybody is a consistent listener of Cinemodies, when we do release that episode eventually, you're, half the jokes in Cinemodies that you never laughed at will make sense all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fulfilling. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, so like getting to like some of the main characters that aren't Steve Martin... Sure. It's it's again Rick Moranis. I he's doing the Rick Moranis shtick. It's it's funny. Talk yes. about a guy that was like typecast to play one role and one role only. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yep. I've never been a big fan of his, so that kind of left me lukewarm. Oh, okay, okay. I think um I think it falls into the category of you know uh, I have I have some you know affinity for Rick Moranis, but just because I saw him in a lot of these movies when I was younger, like you know this uh, Honey I Shrunk the Kids. Um, the other movie he did with Steve Martin, Parenthood, I remember seeing that. That's a little more of a serious movie, but, you know, he does kind of that, that same thing in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of always, you know, enjoyed it. Um, Spaceballs, I watched that when I was a kid with him in it. I'm trying to think. Uh, Ghostbusters, like we already mentioned, he hasn't even been in, I guess, a lot of stuff that I, now that I try and think of it, stuff that I really, you know, kind of cherish from my childhood. But I've always, guess, kind of been okay with him. But I, I see what you're saying, you know, where he just kind of has that same you know, affect in all these movies, and that's who he plays and typecast, absolutely. Yeah. I don't even know if it's typecast. I think it's just the fact that, like, he has a... Uh, that's the weird thing, though, because by, by the late 80s, he was able to kind of do what he wanted, and that's why he does now, he does what he wants, is because mm-hmm. he doesn't have... He has enough money, he doesn't have to worry about anything. Was he in... Did he have a cameo in the Ghostbusters reboot? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. okay. I, don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think he did. He might have. I don't, they kind of they kind of forced everybody in those movies at gunpoint to show up. <laughs> yeah, I never saw it. I know that Bill Murray has a cameo because I read about it, but that's the only one I I've heard of. I uh, I guess I, I will ask you, um, Audrey. I don't know her name off the top of my head. The actress that plays Audrey in this movie, but I love the voice that she's doing in this. That weird kind of lispy, 
light, airy voice. We'll have to put some clips in, but I don't know. There's something about that that just stands out to me big time. I'll help him clean it up before any of the customers get here. Okay, I'm looking. He's the last thing Rick Moranis has done in 12 years. I'm not even joking. Oh, God. He showed up in one episode of The Goldbergs reprising Dark Helmet. Ah, okay. Okay. That's it. Like, Jeez. <laughs> pr- prior to that, he did a voice in Disney's Brother Bear. I don't think I even know what that is. <laughs> it's an animated movie. Other than that, he's really like, like he has not like since like 2000. He's only done like that. Oh my god, I think he, that's like all he's done other than like voice work. Like I don't think he's actually he hasn't starred in a movie since Honey We Shrunk Ourselves. Wow, and that came out 22 years ago. <laughs> that's insane. I remember that one too. That's insane. Just like dropping off the face of the earth like that. Yeah, really. Yeah, so I guess he wasn't in um, Ghostbusters 2016. Okay. Right on. Good for him. <laughs> they they weren't able to drag him back. <laughs> no, I guess I guess he had enough money to pay off the lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay, interesting, huh? But yeah, no. Audrey's voice. Um, okay. I, I I wasn't bothered by. It. I think it's fine. Well, mm. I th- the thing I found most interesting about it is that if anybody knows their their Fantastic Beast movies, oh. the one of the characters in that Queenie does the exact has almost the exact same hairdo as Audrey and the same ex- exact like high pitched like voice. Oh, interesting! And it makes me wonder why is J.K. Rowling doing this? <laughs> and considering all the other weird stuff that J.K. Rowling, like, I know like she's been like, she's become now like the butt of, like of the joke on the internet. Oh yeah! Every, every week now she has a new thing about Harry Potter, like. Like some some weird sexual thing because like it's like you never knew this, but these two characters had an intense sexual relationship together. Yeah, Everyone's I definitely like, I, I saw one that made me laugh hysterically. It was a video where like someone was just sitting somewhere, like reading a book, not even a Harry Potter book, and then someone dressed as J.K. Rowling like creeps around the corner and they go, psst, psst, hey, hey, and the guy's like, what? And it's like, did you know Hagrid was in a wheelchair for the all the books? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, great. I was like, that's exactly how I pictured J.K. Rowling just creeping around and then whispering weird facts to random people. <laughs> Going back to Audrey, I think that's that's how I, I kind of heard the voice. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. And OK, it's like, I, I don't get it, but sure. <laughs> right on. I definitely didn't. Was the character you're mentioning in Fantastic Beasts in the first one? Because that's the only one I've Both. Seen. Both of them. In, um, oh, she's in both? Okay. Yeah, that I got... in Crimes of, of, of Johnny Depp. Okay, I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, so you're not talking about Eddie Redmayne? <laughs> no, not, no, no. He has his own <laughs> voice. He does. He does. <laughs> Eddie, yes, Eddie Redmayne uh, as what? Newt, Newt or whatever. He's um, He was modeled after Audrey from Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> Now that makes that performance much more sense now. Yeah, I might, I'll go. I'll go have to. I'll go back and have to listen to that voice. I'll help him clean it up before any of the customers get here. Oh, you slay me! I ain't never really talked to a nomad before. So certain aspects of this just didn't click for me. Like I just, other than the Steve Martin thing, I really like. I was disengaged. It's like oh, even like the very beginning where you have like oh, they like all the like oh god, like the doo wop singers mm-hmm. and the 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 skid row and it's like oh okay. i really like that i like that song a lot i know maybe not you know it goes on a little bit but i do enjoy like the uh the sound of that song oh yeah i 
like again, other than like the Steve Martin song, and I think only like sure. him I like him as the, I like his character. I didn't like. I, there's not one song in this I could tell you about. Like I could not. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't repeat one song to you if I want. If I could. If if I had to. <laughs> I definitely love the music. The music has stuck with me. I, you know, ever since I was a kid, I, um, I definitely, you know, like the the main theme, the Little Shop of Horrors theme, that'll pop into my head every now and then. Um, and I always have fun replacing little with different sizes. You know, because why do you want to sing Little Shop of Horrors all the time? Like, uh, there's sometimes when you sing like like Large Shop of Horrors or Medium Sized Shop of Horrors or Warehouse Shop of Horrors. <laughs> Of course, so I definitely I definitely play around with it to that extent. Um, but that one, I definitely like the Skid Row song. I really like. I like the one at the end that the plant sings, the Mean Green Mean Green Mother from Outer uh, Space or something like that. That's a really good one. But yeah, okay. No, that's that's kind of understandable. You know, the music is um, definitely it's it's not it definitely it doesn't like bam. Oh, I'm gonna listen to this all the time because I want to. It's more of just like an enjoyable beat for me. Like I, I love like hearing this music and it keeps me going through it. Whereas in comparison to say something like Aristocats, <laughs> where with the exception of everybody wants to be a cat, it's just like okay, like we're doing this we're doing this now. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't really you know catch your attention other than it's like okay, it's going, it's going, it's going, and we're on to the next part of the story. You know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right on. But yeah, music, music in our music movie. <laughs> okay. So who else do we have? Oh, Mr. Mushnick, the shop oh, owner. Yes. Mr. I Mushnick. like him. I like some of his, um, at the, at the beginning, of course, when he's like, you know, kind of very melodramatic about the, um, the, the shop. And it's that whole scene where he's like, you could put the plant in the window, Mr. Mushnick, and it'll bring in customers. And it's like, what? what do you think? You got to put a weird plant in the window. It's going to bring in customers. And then Christopher Guest shows up doing like such, you know, what is that amazing plant in the window? Like it's so automatic. Oh, it's, it's great. Excuse me. I couldn't help noticing that strange and interesting plant. What is it? It's an orchard. I've never seen anything like it before. No one has. Where did you get it? Yeah, I, I do like Christ the way Christopher Guest delivers his lines. It's very, very strange. Like, it sounds strange to me, but I think it, it sounds good at the same time. I think the Christopher Guest performance in this is the basis for the, what was it called? The, oh my lord, Enzyte, like, male, male enhancement pill commercials. <laughs> oh. I figured his performance in this was the basis for those. Oh, God, what was his name? Oh, God. Boom, 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 boom. The character had a name in all those commercials. Yeah, I, I know who you're talking about. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, Man, I haven't boom. thought about that in forever. <laughs> we'll insert the clip of the Enzyme commercial here, and then after we look it up, we'll tell you the name of the character. This is Bob. Bob is doing well. Very well indeed. That's because not long ago, with just a quick phone call, Bob realized that he could have something better in his life. And what did he get? Why, a big boost of confidence, a little more self-esteem, and a very happy Mrs. at home. Call or go online now to get a sample pack. Enzyte, the once daily tablet for natural male enhancements. Oh, Enzyte Bob. Enzyme, okay. Enzyme, oh, it's just Enzyme Bob. Okay. <laughs> Folks, we figured it out. It's Enzyme Bob. 
so yeah, I guess in terms of cameos, you know, we did the did the Bill Murray, we got this Christopher Guest, um, and of course we have to talk about the John Candy cameo. Yeah, John Candy's in this. Yeah, John Candy is, you know, a, a lot shorter his time in this movie um, than Bill Murray, of course. But I, I love what he does. You know, it's, I feel like it's John Candy doing John Candy as a radio host type of thing. And now Wink Wilkinson's Weird World with your host, Wink Wilkinson. Hi, everybody. It's Weird Wink Wilkinson laughing and scratching. At you. How's everybody doing today? I got a little bit of a stiff neck. Let me just fix this up. Ooh, that feels a lot better. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. What are you doing here? What? You... Please, lady, don't. Put your clothes back on. It's Wink. Well, you can't do this to me. What if your husband were to walk in? I'm right here, Wink. I'm sorry. I love your show, but I've got to kill you both with this machine gun. Oh, you got me. Oh, 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 oh. I feel, I feel so very weird. But the thing that stands out to me more about the John Candy scene is not when he's at, when Seymour, when Rick Moranis is actually in the radio station. Uh, recording the the episode it's when he's in the waiting room and there's like the other people waiting <laughs> to be on on what wilk wilkins wink wilkinson's show of like the weird reality or something like that we see what i think three other people are in the waiting room with him and it's like it's i don't know if it's a dwarf but it's definitely someone who's very short like they're kind of on the fence like it might just be a short person mm-hmm. and they are in like kind of a mafia type suit like with the hat and everything, sitting next to a wooden nun, like a full-on oh. nun, made oh, out a ventriloquist. Of wood. He's a ventriloquist. Okay, but the, it has a saxophone, so he's ventri- yeah. he's doing ventriloquism with a sax. That's okay. That I actually want to hear now. <laughs> if he could, you know, make the noise of a saxophone like the dummies playing it, that would be great. But I've always loved that this the nun is huge and it's holding a saxophone, and there's a shorter person next to it, of course. The second one in the middle is probably my favorite. It's an old lady holding a like a box wrapped in chains. And there's like a padlock on it. And that's it. it the box isn't shaking or anything. It's just heavy duty chained up. And then the third is like some old older guy in some contraption that looks straight out of Mad Max or something like that. And then, you know, it kind of focuses back on Seymour. And that's all we get of these three characters. But it's just such a strange touch. I guess, you know, part of that offbeat aspect that we were mentioning before. Like, like, what is this old lady doing with a box and chains? Like, what is that going to do for the radio show? <laughs> like the ventriloquist, you know, you can talk about the plant and, and all that stuff, but it's like, I, I want to know more about that box. <laughs> well, like you said, the, the old guy at the end had some sort of like a steampunk flying contraption. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I think that's supposed to be the fun thing, too, is that all these um, people that are coming on the radio program, all their acts pretty much aren't aren't appreciable through for through radio yes <laughs> oh it's great yeah that's a cute little moment especially yeah it's it's yeah it's neat it's a gag i think that's the inspiration that uh, hack snyder used for batman v superman when uh wonder woman goes on the computer and she sees the file for the flash aquaman yeah. and cyborg that's where he got the inspiration from wonder woman wonder woman wonder woman wonder woman wonder woman hmm do you think that back in the 80s when this was getting made, that there was some some thought that there might be a sequel where Rick Moranis would team up with those three other people to, like, take down the alien plants? It would be like a, a Justice League type of thing. <laughs> like the superhero we version of Photoshop Oh, my God. 
Yeah, that's how they defeat the um the evil aliens or the alien plants. Yep. <laughs> Audrey Audrey three versus saxophone nun. Yeah, yeah, saxophone nun. There you go. That now that that is a superhero name if I ever heard one. Saxophone nun. <laughs> Nice. The hero, the hero we need but don't deserve. <laughs> right on, right on. Oh, so that's a great scene, and then we get John Candy, and and uh, you know he he trails off when uh, Rick Moranis tells is going to tell his story again about the finding the plant, which is the song you know the do da, and the, we hear that little bit of music, and then it cuts off. So I guess speaking of that song, when he retells the tale of how he found uh, Audrey two on this you know shop, uh, the Asian florist or whatever. There's a small part in that song because, you know, there's singing or there's some music and, you know, Rick Moranis is kind of talking over it. And he goes to the Asian florist, doesn't see anything he likes. He crosses the street. As he's crossing the street, the total eclipse of the sun happens, which is what causes the plant to show up. But right before it happens, Rick Moranis walks into frame with like four or five doo-wop singers. Like they're, you know, dressed in civilian clothes and, and they're, you know, they're all lined up and they're snapping in unison, you know, humming or vocalizing and right before the total eclipse happens, Rick Moranis like tries to get in line with them and start snapping. Did you pick up on oh, that? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. And yeah. I, I've always loved that little that little gag, you know, that sight gag of him being like, "What are these people doing singing across the street?" <laughs> and then it just goes back to the story that he's telling. Oh, if that, I think that's what I a great example of what I was saying before that there's that that goofy sense of charm to this movie. And that's a, that's a great moment that I, I always latched onto that I think reflects that goofy charm. Well, I think this is also something that kind of influenced the culture in more implicit ways where it's you like, it's kind of like, like we talked about the cat in the hat. It's like, Oh, all these things about like breaking the fourth, like subtly breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. Okay. Sure. And this is where you eventually get something like Deadpool. Like we that now makes like $300 million opening weekend. And you can have all these kind of weird jokes or people, again, it can be very meta. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Where again, whereas probably back in the mid eighties, you can only, Oh God, I can't imagine probably the first musical, if not the first, probably the second that had some sort of joke like that, where it's like, Oh, the characters realize what sequence they're in on. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's in the same kind of realm as again, that's why sure. again, Alan Murkin and Howard Ashton were ahead of their times. They really were. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Neat. Yeah, that uh, stands out to me. You're right. And, and I think it's come up, you know, many times now on uh, on this podcast where we discuss that. And, and, and you know, you always have to remind me of that, Zach, because any anytime anything is meta, you know, it's like I am totally in this day and age. That's just common. You know, that's that uh, meta humor is definitely, you know, I think a common thing, not even humor, just the, the concept of being meta in, in medium is absolutely such, you know, rampant these days. And it's always good to be reminded that back then, you know, now I see it like, oh, that's great. But sure, sure, it had to implicitly, you know, impact where we got to today. Because I think I can't remember for the life of me when we when we last talked about this, but it was like, you know, this never happened back like back then. This was unique for its time. And yeah. then it kind of, you know, ramped up to what we get today. Absolutely. Into the, the bastardization of it that we get today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we get Deadpool and all the nonsense surrounding him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's a Simpsons joke at one point where like somebody says something and one of the characters turns around and is like, are you being ironic? And it's, I think the other character goes, I'm not even sure anymore. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, right on. <laughs> what uh, do we have for cameo in this? Oh, I guess, I guess since, um, well, uh, we kind of have in the theatrical versus the director's ending, there's definitely a cameo in there, but it's by different actors. 
So in the one we're discussing, the director's cut ending, um, the 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 guy who wants to sell uh, Audrey two at the end, like after after Seymour, you know, is going to commit suicide because the plant ate the only thing he loved. That that guy approaches him and he's like, "Hey, we're going to put Audrey two in every home in America or something like that." Um, that guy is played in the theatrical ending by Jim Belushi, I believe, oh. because because they couldn't get oh what's his name Pat Pat Dooley or something like that is the guy in the director's cut. Uh, I was reading that you know he he for the reshoots he wasn't able to come back so they had Jim Belushi instead in a in a slightly smaller role. So so that cameo is kind of different for each of our versions as well. <laughs> mm, I didn't know that. I, I missed that. So I do have to say that even though we've discussed how I prefer the director's cut ending. I think the, the the biggest problem I have with the director's cut ending is in that character, the like the shady businessman, because he goes up to Rick Moranis and he's like, "Look at it! Look at this packaging for the tiny version of Audrey 2. Like I took a I took a clipping and I I got this going, and we want to start selling them, you know. So like, join us or whatever. Like be part of the marketing team. And Rick Moranis realizes that they're evil aliens, and that's going to be a bad thing. And so Rick Moranis is like, no, don't do this. I have to go kill the the big Audrey, too. And then as Rick Moranis is leaving, the businessman, like, screams at him. He's like, we don't need to deal with you anyway. A goddamn vegetable is in the public domain. And I'm like, and I'm like, why? I'm like, why even deal with him in the first place? Like, I get that they're putting that line in to to show, like, maybe why the Audrey, too, becomes so rampant in, in the world because it gets sold. But I just I feel like it's such a weird way to get that in there that it's going to mass market by him saying, hey, you know, you own this plant. You want to work with us? And he says, no, well, we didn't need to ask you this question anyway. And it's like, what what type of business planning is that? You know, it's like we don't have to give you money. But if you want it, sure. It just it seems like it's shoehorned in. Did Rob, you have any thoughts Rob, on you're, that? you're reading too much into this. <laughs> no, but no, it seems so contradictory. It's like it's, it's like it's like two different characters. It's like why would a businessman ever say something like that? I, <laughs> I, I so think you, it's, a, jo- it I, it's a joke. It's a joke. Okay, it's a joke. Okay. It's a joke. It's a joke, and I think I think you're 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 losing it through the minutia of the yes. In a very literal, real world sense, if I had the world's largest pumpkin, no one would have to come to me in order to sell little mini replicas of the world's largest pumpkin. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that it doesn't be a ha ha like he sister he runs again he runs out out obviously to confront Audrey too yeah and then you have the businessman go well we didn't need you anyway there's no and it doesn't be a ha ha it's a ha ha it's not meant to be taken or scrutinized under any sort of real world lens okay I'm glad I'm glad you said it and put it in that light because I I buy that for sure but I guess what I'm saying is. This to me failed so hard at a funny moment that I had no recourse but to analyze it. Like this has never ever seemed like a joke to me. <laughs> now, now he's taking shots at the movie for not uh, understanding his own psychosis. Exactly. That's yeah. That's their that's their main flaw. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quick. Someone call, I think Frank Oz has Twitter. Tweet to Frank Oz. Tell him that when you're not tweeting him complaining that Bert and Ernie aren't gay, tweet to him <laughs> telling him that his joke at the end of the Little Shop of Horrors did not make Rob laugh. And then tweet and ask him what does the old lady have in that chained up box? <laughs> we can get a lot of information for Frank Oz. <laughs> did you see anything on the internet about? I think Frank Oz. It might have been South by Southwest, maybe. Okay. Um, by the time was hearing this, that was like six months ago. Um, <laughs> he was having some panel at South by Southwest, and he was like going to talk about like his direct like, directing career and all the films he's directed. Mm-hmm. And he had to like put out a statement before the panel, like I'm not going to answer any questions about like characters I've I've 
done like Yoda or Miss okay. Piggy or my involvement with Star Wars. And people were getting mad. It's like, well, why would he go out there? He knows a new Star Wars movie's coming out. And it's like, it doesn't come out for another nine months. I'm like, like, like Frank Oz, <laughs> such a large body of work. Is that the only you can ask him is Star Wars episode nine questions? Yeah, exactly. It's like, people are awful. Ask him the like, depressing questions. Like, what kind of things were in the chain box held by the old lady? Ex- yes, yes, exactly. The important questions. <laughs> we're educating people on this podcast. <laughs> then you can go back to her asking about episode nine and why Bert and Ernie aren't gay. Yeah, oh yeah, 100%. Did you yeah, did you hear that, about do that on your own time? <laughs> did you hear about that? Like like uh, uh, Frank Oz tweeted that Bert like something happened. Like the producers of Sesame Street now were like Bert and Ernie are gay and they've been gay for forty five years. And Frank Oz is like, no, they weren't. This person's full of it. And the internet just like <laughs> came down on like Frank Oz. They're like you're an effing homophobe. Oh my and, god! And Frank Oz is like, "Why are you so concerned about the sexual relationship between two Muppets?" <laughs> He's like, "Since when is this a major issue in this country?" Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how I how I like. Feel. That's <laughs> and it was so funny. Like that was his like actual response. It's like, "Why are you so passionate about like two fictional characters' sex lives?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so like, how, how little do you have going on that you can spend t- tons of time thinking and acting on this concept? <laughs> yes. Then little did anybody tell Frank Oz that is Twitter's mission statement and just like corporate bike bio. Yeah, I think when you accept their terms of use, it says that you have to participate in things like that every month, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, and at some point, you will be like, your house will be burned down by the Twitter mob. <laughs> yep, indeed. <laughs> Is there is there any worse social media platform than Twitter? Is there any like like I know Facebook's bad. I know Google constantly spies on us, and Amazon's gonna eventually be like the oh god the company store. And it's Instagram like, is a giant commercial. <laughs> that too. But like, is there any social media platform that's more detriment detrimental to society than than Twitter is? Twitter sure seems to be the one that's uh, taken the forefront, taken the first. Uh, you know, they're the mouthpiece of of that section of society or you know section of social media you know it's like they're the outspoken uh controversial you know weird cousin yeah. <laughs> or maybe maybe patriarch at this point <laughs> yeah the twitter's like a, like a tire fire that somehow can talk yes yeah exactly <laughs> one last thing i have uh sure, fact sure. about a uh, little shop of horrors and i find these sort of like you don't Get a lot of these stories, but I love it when you do. Apparently, like there was a DVD released for Little Shop of Horrors, and before there was a director's cut versus a theatrical cut, mm-hmm. they had like the black and white like story. Oh God, like um, like rough cut of the yes. director's ending, and apparently, like it was on shelves for like a week until David Geffen found out about it and had all the copies pulled from shelves. Oh man. And then, like, I, I don't know how long it took, but they, they reissued, like, another version of the DVD mm-hmm. without, like, this. Or they, I forget, I don't know what they replaced it with. Or if they even did replace it with, like, more, like, behind-the-scenes stuff. And, like, I find that fascinating that, like, that, like, people actually, A, cared about what was on the home video release. Yeah. Like, nowadays, you don't get any bonus features on a home video release. Yeah, exactly. But, like, yeah, that's what I was just thinking, yeah. <laughs> but it's hard to believe that, like, 20 years ago, or however long ago it was, I forget, like, that would have been on something, and the producer would have found out about it, thrown enough of a fit that they would have gotten the studio to pull all the stock, which, think about, like, with all these stores, like, back in the day, like, your Circuit Cities, your Walmarts, your Best Buys, they had to refund all these orders. It, it's, like, you basically were throwing away money. 
Yeah. And Man. not because there was a defect or because something was wrong. It's just because of the vanity of a producer in their product. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I, I guess the only other story I can think of like that was, like, back in, like, I think in the early 70s, like, a year after Clockwork Orange was out, like, Stanley Kubrick was able to, like, convince Warner Brothers to, like, pull the film from theaters in the UK. And basically it was, like, oh, God, like, it was contraband for, like, the longest time. You couldn't get a hold of, like, an official copy of a Clockwork Orange in the UK for, like, decades. And I find that fascinating when, like, when studios will actually comply with the filmmakers. <laughs> Because like yeah, now yeah. I, I like to imagine now like something happens like I don't know like a James Wan's like no no I screwed up I said something like something something's not right on the Aquaman Blu-ray release and Warner Brothers is like <laughs> and just laughs him yeah. out of the room yeah be like, like I, I, either you know it's like either you fight with us to get permission to you know release something of uh, 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 ancillary or deal with it <laughs> yeah I, I that's I think that's just fascinating like like stuff like that actually would happen because it's like okay like. What's the big deal? Like, like, let it sell out, and the next time we produce it, we just won't produce that element. Yeah, but to exactly. actually have like a recall for like a non-defect issue is just like, I find that so fascinating. That is that is really really strange. Um, do you know why the uh, Clockwork Orange was rescinded? Because you like we said, Little Shop of Horrors was because of that that footage. Do you know why it was for Clockwork Orange? Apparently there was still like like a year after it came out, people there were still like crimes and a lot of like think of Jackass early two thousands. Kids were like beating up people oh. and the rest of be like, Why'd you do this, son? It's like I like being like my droogs and committing a bit of the old ultraviolence. Yeah. Apparently and like apparently like, like that happened enough times, Stanley Kubrick's like, Nope, nope, I'm not gonna and especially like, like especially like in the UK. Like there, like, and then even then, it was like okay. Like I would imagine he probably would start to become like persona non grata in certain like social circles because of this. Okay, okay. So anyway, you make like a mea culpa, it's like just get rid of it. It's like it's, it's a solution. You, you bend to the mob, and I guess I guess it made him happy. Okay. Because okay. yeah, and it wasn't until like after he died. I think it was like two thousand one that it finally got like a DVD release in the UK. So like you're oh, talking wow. about like you're talking about like forty years without an official release. Man, yeah, that's like, that, bootlegs, that's crazy. Bootlegs got around. Like, don't get me wrong. Bootlegs were always like, sure. like apparent. But like, if you want like a home video release of a Clockwork Orange in the UK, you're at you're out of luck for a few years. Man, crazy! I never knew. Robert, we could talk about Clockwork Orange on this podcast someday. I hope so. Don't we have like every st- every Kubrick movie on the list somewhere? <laughs> yeah, but I got a feeling we're never going to get to that. I have a feeling that, like we're not going to do a three month long series about Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll definitely have to get to Clockwork Orange. Definitely have to get to uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Definitely have to get to a good a good bit of them. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. Sex orgy movie. Now that's a topic we can both get on board with. <laughs> Zach, there's something we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> interesting yeah so so even with this it has uh they listen to frank uh or geffen like you said crazy crazy stuff yeah david geffen like the next year will go on to uh produce uh beetlejuice 
Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Right on. Then he go on to start. Well, not not like it took a couple more years, but after that, like ten years later, he'd do uh, DreamWorks with uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Steven Spielberg. He's the okay. he's the SKG in DreamWorks SKG. Nice. <laughs> and DreamWorks doesn't really exist anymore because they got bought out by like Universal a couple years ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I haven't heard of DreamWorks in forever. More from these movie kids movies that I used to watch or yeah. when I was younger. Yeah. Rob, we're getting a Shrek 5. Are you excited? Are we really? <laughs> I know they're threatening it. They're threatening a Shrek 5. If you if you had asked me like a true or false style question and be like, true or false, the next Shrek that comes out will be Shrek 5, I would have said false. The no- I would have been like, the number is going to be much higher than 5. <laughs> Shrek <laughs> like, 18. I, yeah, I would imagine that the Shreks are, if like clearly Zach's telling me they're not, they're not there yet, but give them time. I don't know, maybe... A few more weeks, and we're going to have as many Shreks as we have Land Before Time movies. Like, what are they up to? Thirty-eight now, <laughs> Land Before Time, or something like that. There's They'll be up to like Friday the Thirteenth movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There Part you go. thirteen. This time, it's really personal. <laughs> Shrek goes to hell. <laughs> <laughs> now that I would pay to see. <laughs> I'm just imagining that. That'd be crazy. That'd be a good Monstober movie, right? <laughs> Oh, God. You hear us, DreamWorks? You hear us? Oh, well, Jeffrey Katzenberg doesn't even work for them anymore. So who do we tweet to, Rob? Who do we tweet to get that the Shrek goes to hell for the Shrek, fifth Shrek film? Hmm, that's a tough one because you got to oh, you got to get it. You got to get the right person hooked to start that. You know, Michael Myers. Do we tweet to yeah, Michael that's, Myers? That's what I was about to say. Yep. Yep. That's probably the most likely. <laughs> and then after that, we'll go. We'll resort to Eddie Murphy. OK. OK. Yeah. We'll just go down the list of all the, the stars in that movie. <laughs> Cameron Diaz. Oh, that's Antonio right. Banderas. Yeah, man, I haven't seen. I think I only saw the first Shrek, <laughs> to be honest. All right, All right. Rob. But, anything else about Little yeah, Shop of Horrors? I did have one more thing to think of, and it goes back to the, um, I guess uh, maybe not direct comparison between theatrical and director's cut ending, but I did already mentioned earlier on where you know I I had. All of I have my issues with the original ending, but I still love the whole movie. And then when I got to see the director's cut finally, however many years later, it gave me everything I wanted. Um, and I do have to say that the first time, just kind of when I got the director's cut and I was like, oh man, you know, this is great. I get to see what's different, blah, blah, blah. The scene when, I guess when it actually splits, like when the movies are pretty much identical until the ending, and it splits when Audrey gets, she starts to get eaten by Audrey too. When, oh, I, I guess I should also say we get the great scene in this where Audrey too, the plant, uses his vines to pick up a phone and talk on it like a regular person. I will always find that little, sh- that shot of the giant puppet holding a tiny phone receiver up to the side of its, it's not even its head, you know, like it's, it's, it's flower or whatever. That's great. But then when Audrey comes in, it like eats her, starts to eat her. Rick Moranis comes back from the butcher to feed Audrey too, right before he leaves. And he like realizes that it's eating Audrey and he saves her. In the theatrical cut, of course, he saves her and she's good. But in the director's cut, he saves her, but she's, you know, tragically wounded. And as she's dying, I remember the first time I saw the director's cut, I was just like, okay, things are clearly different now. You know, we're like 30 seconds deep into the differences. The next difference we get is she's like, I love you, Seymour. I want you to feed me to the alien plant. I want you to be successful. And I was like, sold. I was like, this is the ending. And that whole shot where it's like she like slips away, her whole body is in the the plant's like mouth and she slips away very slowly as the plant 
like swallows her. That's awesome. The reason I think it's awesome is not because it looks so cool, but also because like everybody else we've ever seen Audrey to eat, it's pretty quick. Like this plant is chomping down on people. Like even swallows Mr. Mushnick whole, I think. But then it's like Audrey 2 is just fucking with Seymour because it knows Seymour loves Audrey and he's like, I'm going to eat it very slowly in front of her. Like I've always loved kind of that that idea around that, you know, little an extra layer to like the dramatic send off of the love interest or something like that. I love that part of the director's cut ending. And I think it, I think it shows off more of like not just that scene, but as Zach already said, you know, the ending, the big attack, you know, they're attacking the city or whatever, Manhattan. Uh, like all those effects are shown off, shown off so well in that director's cut ending, where you know in the theatrical cut it's just like, oh, gets electrocuted. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Definitely, uh, there's more imagination on display in the director's cut. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I, I think uh, when trying to appease an audience, exactly. there's a there's a way of doing it. And then there's just really the nihilistic ending, which is again, I, I think that ending works more for today's era. Mm. And but but back then you do need that kind of you need you need a schmaltzy ending like the same ending that yeah. kind of happened in Beetlejuice. It's that same kind of ending where it's like oh they're like uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis are fine. Beetlejuice is in like the reception room of of, of the underworld number was he number three million four hundred seventy six thousand two hundred eight. He gets his head shrunk. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You you need that ending where it's like okay the bad guy loses the good guys were never they 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 weren't making wrong decisions because they were evil they're just making them based on their circumstances and i think i I don't think anybody watching okay any mouth breather or filthy casual watching little shop of horrors in in, in 1986 didn't want to see audrey and rick moranis punished sure yeah you gotta look at you gotta look at it that way it's not again like that idiot on youtube who's saying hedonistic ending versus ambivalent (laughs) or benevolent (laughs) ending it's not it's not that it's like no it's like yeah, for the for the, the the marketing or the um the test testing of the time that they did, absolutely, I get exactly. You put, I think you put it perfectly. Like that's what they needed for the audiences for that time, absolutely. Like I think it's funny. Like in that same video, they were talking about it. They're like, sometimes, like oh god, because I think what that person references too that it's like, oh, like when they did test screenings for Seven, and apparently like, the audiences like hated the fact that like Brad Pitt shoots them, and they're like, you're like, and, and, like David Fincher didn't back off. And all they mm-hmm. did was like they, they cut some scenes short and they add some narration to make it go down a little bit better. But see, he he showed artistic integrity and Frank Oz didn't. It's like, <laughs> folks, like Frank Oz was given twenty five million dollars to make this movie. It's like it's not just him. It's the studio. It's the producers. It's like if somebody if you gave somebody twenty five million dollars to make something and you had an audience feedback that said, we don't like this. Are you going to say, well. There goes $25 million, but at least it has artistic integrity. It's like, I think it's so easy to say that, like, after the fact. It's so easy. But, like, imagine if it was your money. Like, imagine, not even your money. Imagine if it was, like, your your investment Mm -hmm. that somebody's doing, and they throw it away for artistic integrity. Exactly. It's yeah. it's worth knowing. It. This movie didn't it did, didn't like light the box office on fire. Like according to what I read, it was kind of seen as an underperformer in the winter of 1986. Okay. Okay. So I don't think this film ever again. This film was never going to resonate like on a the same scale as a Beetlejuice. It yeah, was never. Yeah. It was never gonna be like you need a a Tim Burton to do this. Definitely. Frank Oz. Frank Oz has imagination, but he's not a Tim Burton. Or okay. He's not a Tim Burton of the of the eighties and nineties. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> He's not Tim Burton of like the the two thousand tens. 
<laughs> the Tim Burton, the Alice in Wonderland Tim Burton. <laughs> or the, oh God, the, the Dumbo Tim Burton. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Man. Oh, yeah, so that that that, uh, that ending was the, uh, that little twi- uh, Audrey thing in the last ending is what I wanted to point out. It's always stood out to me. It's great. This is, the director's cut is definitely my version of the movie. <laughs> the other one I'll, I'll put on Twitter, you know, for the theatrical reads to say, you know, not my little shop of horrors. There you go. Hashtag, I'm sorry, Octothorpe, not my little shop of horrors. <laughs> not my Audrey. <laughs> not my Audrey too. <laughs> not my Tui. Yeah, not my Tui. There we go. That'll, that doesn't take up too many characters. Okay, no. right on. <laughs> All right. So are we moving on to the real questions? Is that what's, what's next? I think so. Hey, well, I will kick us off with, let's start with Cinemodities and Late Night Movie. Um, I'm talking about the director's cut, of course. I don't think my answer would change if we talked about the theatrical cut, though. I am actually going to say no to both. I don't oh, think boo. this is really a Cinemodity. I, I, you know, kind of maybe with the ex- the experience I have, experiences I have with it, it's kind of... I don't know. I feel on this occasion I might be blending cinemodity and late night movie together too much. But I, when I was watched it for this recording, I definitely picked up more on that wholesomeness, as offbeat as it might be, that charm, as goofy as it might be, and that kind of took me out of the cinemodity's realm, uh, at least in my head. And I think that kind of goes the same for the late night movie, because as I've, I've said many times, I always like to show late night movie to somebody and get a reaction, be able to talk about it, something along those lines. This being a musical, I think that would turn a lot of the people that I, I would share a late night movie with off. Um, I, I think that, you know, you kind of need more of a grounding or a history with this movie to, or maybe musicals in general, to be more willing to watch this. And I, I also don't think there's anything in there that, you know, in this day and age would get such a reaction to people, from people. I feel like they'd be like, oh, there's a love story, there's an alien it eats people, like, what's new? Like, what What am I supposed to be getting here? Where it's like, if we share some of the other crazy things that we've talked about as late night movies, it's it's clear. Like, I don't think this would, this would click with people, maybe in the same way it didn't click with you, Zach, for a late night movie. So I'm going to say no to both. Well, I, I okay, I'm going to say yes to both. We're split again, Ooh. folks. <laughs> is that, I think this is, this is a slam, okay, it, I don't want to say slam dunk in the sense of like cat in a hat slam dunk. Yeah. But I think this is in the same realm. It's like, okay, there's so many weird things going on in this. It's that, it's like a, oh God, like a Tootsie Roll, except instead of like, you have your chocolate nougaty center, Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like the inverse of that. It's that you have your your schmaltiness on the outside, but when you kind of dig past that layer of schmaltiness, okay. you have the you have the weird elements of this. And yes, the 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 musical element, the doo wop, the love story between the nerd and the pretty woman. It's like yeah, that's your schmaltz, and that's it's kind of like it's your sugar coated element of it. But once you get past it, you got a lot of weird crap going on between this again, the special effects, the the some of the interactions between the characters. And especially the director's cut ending, I think, is more of a cinemati than the theatrical cut ending is. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think for as for a late night movie, yeah, it's 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 weird. I think you could show this to people. Again, yes, this is the type of thing I know. Even like uh, Rob and I's local high school, like you'll drive by them and have a stupid like easel out, and they're like, "This is our spring production." I know at least once or twice I've seen it say "Little Shop of Horrors." Okay. Oh, oh, yeah, I remember <clears throat> some either. While we were there, or my mom telling me about it. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Like, I think the story, uh, in a nutshell, maybe isn't a cinemati, but I think this incarnation is. 
that that's a really good way to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because when you boil this down to the story, you know, it's, it might be, you know, maybe not extremely well known, but I think that, you know, Little Shop of Horrors has some, you know, especially in theater because of the play and stuff, it has some, it garners some attention, just the name. So, but okay, you're right. Kind of this incarnation is definitely, you know, it plays with it in a way that would push it more towards that end. Okay, interesting. Well, that's the weird thing, though, because, like, I'm trying to think of other things in the realm of this, like music, offbeat musicals. Mm-hmm. And the only other thing there is is Rocky Horror. Yeah, that, and, yeah. And, and you look at Rocky Horror, and it's weird. Like, we don't talk about Rocky Horror as much in the culture today. Because I remember, I think it was a couple of years ago, like, when Fox... I don't know if they still do them. Used to do their um, like live action musicals, like they do them like in live, like real time, like live on TV. Oh, I think they did. I think they did Rent a few months back. Yeah, they did like I think a couple years ago they did um, what was it called? Uh, Peter Pan with like what was her name? Uh, Brian Williams' daughter in Christopher Walken was Captain Hook. And And I know once they did Rocky Horror. And it didn't really like people weren't excited about it because obviously how do you how do you redo Rocky Horror? Mm-hmm. But I think the reason why something like Rocky Horror doesn't really like it's weird. Rocky Horror's been homogenized because everything that was risque and off color about that is a hundred percent normalized now. Yes, like Doctor Frankenfutter. Yeah. Like you, can, you can go on a subway in New York and you'll see that at ten a.m. in the morning. Like that's oh, yeah. not that is not shocking by any way, shape, or means anymore. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, you'll go into a party city and you'll hear "Let's do the time warp again" yep. every October. Like it's weird. Like, Rocky Horror has been consumed by the thing it was trying to rebel against. Mm-hmm. Yet with Little Shop of Horrors, like you do, like. And, and you have the music, which is very much again sixties doo wop. Yes. And yeah, it's still all it's weird enough for people. Again, I think the whole thing with with like again, not to go back to Bill Murray and Steve Martin in, in the office, but like you don't see that nowadays. Like if you like yeah. if you're let's say for example, okay, you're writing Deadpool three. And let's say they're gonna rip that scene off. Mm-hmm. Very similar to what Family Guy did with their seat with their ripoff of this. Sure. If you were to do that. Um, it would be so so over the top. Like it, yeah. I think I think that happened in the first Deadpool, where it's like he goes in to like be cured of his like ailment, his cancer ailment, and like the doctor, like we're gonna save you, Deadpool, by killing you first. And he's like, and like you have like like what's her name? Oh my god, she's the uh, the MMA fighter. I forget what her name is. And he's like, "Don't leave me here with Rosie O'Donnell alone." And she like punches him in the face, and it's like, <laughs> and like, and, like oh, he says. Uh, Ronda Rousey. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is it? No, it's not Ronda Rousey. Gina Carano. Gina Carano. Thank oh, okay, you. okay. Yeah, no, it wasn't Ronda Rousey. I thought and you like, were playing when you said Rosie O'Donnell, it made me think of Ronda Rousey. <laughs> I think say. it should have been Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> that would have made uh, Deadpool more enjoyable for, for me. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think like that's the sort of thing. Like you, if you're gonna rip it off. It's going to hit you over. Like, you watch that sequence, and unless until the very last moment where, like you said, Steve Martin chases him out, and he's like, Get out of here, you sick freak. Mm-hmm. Um, like, until you get that very last, because everything is just so subtle. Yes. And again, subtlety doesn't exist in comedy, never mind in the culture nowadays. Yeah. And I think that's what it be is that, like, this does have, again, you know, again, you do have an over the top 16 foot tall tree, uh, a plant alien. There are so many things in this that are so subdued that I think fly under the radar for most mouth breathers nowadays. Nowadays, because okay. you'd be like, oh, because most people I would imagine who would be watching Bill Murray's performance in this, it'd be like, oh, is he gay for Steve Martin? 
Ah, uh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Like, is Steve Barton being a homophobe? Because you know, we have to throw all these buzzwords in there. And I think that's who would be like, oh, is he coming on? Like, and I think that's how people would interpret it, that he's gay. And this was meant to be something about like uh, 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 closeted homosexuality of the age. Gotcha. Yeah. And, like, it's something, and there's, I would imagine if you typed in Little Shop of Horrors, Bill Murray, Steve Martin, uh, AIDS, I would imagine something would come up about that. But oh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's Howard Ashman put this in here as a direct reference to the AIDS crisis of the late 80s. I would imagine there's probably a Slate or Salon article about that right oh, now. Jeez. I don't, I don't, I don't doubt that. <laughs> And that's what I mean. I think that's why it's a cinemati. I think it, in a okay. weird way, it's uh, God, 30, 32 years later, it's still uh, outwitting its audience. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting point. I think that's why it's a cinemati. And I do think even as a late night movie, it, I think it's in the same ballpark as something like Cat in the Hat or, or Star Wars, The Clone Wars, where it's, it's, it's not going to disenfranchise anybody. It's, it's, it's something it's, it's I can, you can show this to an eight year old and there's nothing in this mm -hmm. that would be inappropriate. Whereas you cannot show Jason goes to hell to an eight year old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I hear what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Interesting point for sure. You gonna throw this on for your action figures later today? <laughs> no, not for my action. No, like I, I, I want to go back and watch some of the Steve Martin stuff again because that was like I need to rewatch the Bill Murray thing again. I only, like, mm -hmm. I only watched it that once. Uh, but no, like I said, I, 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 you know, it's weird. It's that same thing I've said numerous times. Just because you like something doesn't mean it's good. Just because something's good yep. doesn't mean you have to like it. Exactly. And this is one of those ones. Like, you know, I don't like this movie particularly. I admire it. I admire sure. its existence. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Indeed. All right, so snacks. Yes, nice. Rob. Are we? I don't how, have... how, many, how many plants are we eating? Are we having a a two-e salad? <laughs> so, so I definitely thought there was a lot to do with, of course, the plant aspect that we have in it. Um, but I, I was thinking about that, you know, and I decided to take it a little different turn. I, I, I just want to say, you know, maybe not. Maybe what I'm pitching for the restaurant is we don't do anything where we are eating the alien plants, but rather we open our doors to that species as customers and we provide oh. food that they would be able to eat as well. Because I think right now the only the only types of creatures we're allowing into the Cinemodities restaurant are humans and human children. <laughs> those, are, those are definitely different categories. Um, so now if we open our doors and say something like, well, I don't even think they give a name of like, it's just an alien plant. You know, we say alien plants, welcome. And, you know, we have maybe a special part of the menu for them or, or something like that. I, I was thinking instead of using them as food, we try and get them to be a source of revenue. Ah. What do you think? Now that they took over the world uh, at the end of this movie, you know? <laughs> Since when, Rob, has the Cinemodis ref restaurant ever been concerned about revenue? <laughs> Good, good point. Good point. This year, <laughs> <laughs> this episode, this week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll see what it comes up again next. <laughs> uh, God. So yeah, that uh, was that's what I was thinking. We let them in instead of um, using them in another way. Oh, uh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Did you well, have? Were you thinking of using them? Considering that uh, we're in the former Mars twenty one twelve spot subterranean, I'm not sure. Are the twoies able to? Dig underground. We might be the only few restaurants that would be still in business after this. But oh. humans are forced to go underground. I feel like they would have to, like the the alien plants would have to do something by like 
you know, digging. They would be able to dig through the ground, but like only with their roots or something. Oh. They'd have to, they'd have to like attack us from above. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So maybe you know, we, we install I'm, some like defense system, like steel or titanium above the restaurant, but below the ground, you know? Gotcha. Gotcha. Do we, how deep is the Mars 2112 space? Do we know how, how, how far below ground that is? You know what? We, sh- we should know because it's, we own the space now, but, uh, but uh, I think we left that all to our contractor. He would know. <laughs> so maybe we'll have to we'll have to add, we'll have to call him up after the recording. And we'll we'll see what he says and we'll put it in this episode. All right, well, follow up episode, folks. <laughs> yeah. I am going to diverge from the raw path. I'm okay. going to recommend a nice salad and some <laughs> blood vinaigrette dressing. Okay, so would it be made from actual blood? Uh, that's up to you to decide. I'm letting you decide. You are executive chef. You're the one who decides these things. Well, uh, I would say yes. There's got to be, <laughs> be some real blood in there. And, and I like that, you know, cause that's, that might be, uh, a, a little healthier of an option than we've ever had at the Cinemodities restaurant. You, know, you get a salad and sure it's made out. I'm guessing Zach, correct me if I'm wrong. It's made out of the alien plant leaves. Only, only when we have it in house and it's not, we resort to iceberg. Okay. Okay. So, so, so we'll, we'll talk about the alien one, of course. So it, uh, who knows if that's healthy, but you know, maybe, you know, you have some light dressing, some, you know, some other veggies in the salad. Yeah. I, I could get behind that for sure. Absolutely. You can, you can also substitute the blood dressing with a uh, ranch. You can just dump an entire bottle of ranch on it. <laughs> I don't know what it does to tie into this, but I'm just, I'm recommending that you just dump a bottle of ranch on like a cup of salad. I, I guess it comes into play because we should say that it, it's it's only optional that you dump the cup of ranch onto your salad. Yes. If you go to places like Pittsburgh, it's it's a requirement that you dump an entire bottle of ranch on your salad. <laughs> yes, you just drown it. Like basically, you're having some salad, but your salad dressing. Yep, yep. Yeah, I lived that life when I was out in Pittsburgh. I, just, I saw people do that. It was crazy. <laughs> Disgusting people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, I think there was even a Hidden Valley Ranch commercial I saw recently where it's like someone is literally drinking ranch <laughs> out of the bottle with a straw. Like, like I've, I've, I've never seen someone drink ranch out of the bottle with a straw, but you better believe I've, I've seen somebody on multiple occasions just like swig ranch. Seriously. Oh my God. It's not like that even. That's something I, I like ranch, but I'm not going to drink it straight. <laughs> oh, my God. Ron's, Ron, I think, was drunk everything. Like, Swig did at least once. If it's, if it's in a bottle, he's drank it, whether it be alcohol, windshield wiper fluid, radiator An- fluid. Antifreeze. Yeah, the antifreeze. <laughs> antifreeze. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, okay. So, blood dressing or. Um, a gallon, a gallon of ranch. A, only you only can get either zero ranch or a gallon of ranch. <laughs> there you go. Okay, nice. I'm glad you brought the the blood into it because, of course, I had to think about that for a snack as well. Because even though we didn't talk about the scene, of course, when when Audrey Two is very small, Rick Moranis feeds it by pricking his fingers and then letting Audrey Two suck on his fingers. But before that becomes the norm for Rick Moranis and taking care of this plant, we get the song where it leads up to him realizing that the plant wants blood. And he does that weird, like, dripping thing into the plant's mouth, where he, like, squeezes his pricked finger, and it, you know, just puts a few drops of blood. They fall down onto Audrey, too, with its mouth open. That's what I was thinking of. My ah. brain went towards how do we... It's, it's almost like the antithesis of the caviar glory hole that's constantly pouring out large volumes of caviar. This would have to be, like, like a, a leaky faucet or a leaky pipe type of ah. delivery system. So this is what I thought of. And I, I, tr- I drew on, I decided to draw on an actual 
blood dish for this one. So you ready, Zach? Oh, boy. Okay. So I, I don't know if I've told Zach this story. I definitely haven't talked about it on the podcast, I'm, I think. Um, but there was one time when I was in Thailand and in one of the outings where we had – I was there for a conference, so we kind of had like a, like a guide. Like it wasn't a formal guide, but, you know, someone uh, – got lead us around like the busy places and be like, Oh, that's what this is. And that's what this is. Cause spoiler alert, I don't speak any language other than English. <laughs> so one of the things that when we were in a market somewhere, uh, that I saw was just, uh, the front of a, of a little, you know, kiosk or something had just snakes, like dead snakes, just hanging at the front, like a curtain of dead snakes. And I was like, what is that? Can you like eat snake meat? And it turns out that what they do in a lot of Asian countries is you can actually drink snake blood. And it's like a shot of snake blood. And the way they do it is you go up to the person, you order it, they cut the snake lengthwise, and they let all the blood pour down it into a shot glass, and then you drink it. It tasted – I did this, I should say. And it oh, tasted God. like blood. Like it, I was like, really? This is a thing? Like you could do this? And they're like, yeah. It's like you know, people buy it all the time. And so I was like, got to try it. And it tasted like blood. If you've ever pricked your own finger and, you know, put it in your mouth, apparently snake's blood and human blood taste very similar to me. But here's my pitch for the restaurant. We do the snake blood drink, but we don't just make a large incision to have all the blood drain quickly. We make it so the blood just kind of drips out slowly. Almost like if you order this at your table, you get a little IV hanger, but instead of an IV bag, it's a snake. And then you have like a gerbil feeder for the snake's blood or something like that. So it's a it's a slow release snake blood beverage. That's there we go. Just came up with the name slow release snake blood beverage. What do you think, Zach? You know, folks, you lost me. <laughs> I take that as a yes. <laughs> you lost me, folks. And you know what? I, I I wonder sometimes in our very very limited audience on cinemas, how which portion of our audience identifies with Rob and which part identifies with me? I think this the adventurous the adventurous people that want to drink snake's blood at a, at a Bangkok you know food market. Those are the people that identify with me. If that's on uh, your bucket list. Get in my corner. <laughs> I certainly hope they do because I don't want them in Team Zachary. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. Oh, I like that name. Slow release snake blood drink. That's great. All right. That's, a, that's <laughs> our next that's our next Shark Tank pitch, if anything. Oh my god. <laughs> the thing the more you know, folks, the more you know. Yep. Oh, that was it. So that was the last snack I had. Did you have any more, Mr. Snackmaster? Uh, I think we there should be some food dish that involves the the phrase feed me. Oh, yeah. Feed me, Seymour. Feed me. Mm, okay. Um, I don't know what it was. I couldn't think of anything that would be like that would involve. I don't know. What if we give, uh, like, there's a button on every table in the restaurant that if you pre- if anybody at the table presses it, it'll play that noise, like, feed me. And so that'll be the way that, you know, unhappy customers that have been waiting too long, that's how they can get our attention. And maybe ah. it'll it'll make them feel better instead of being like, oh, I have to go out of my way to find a waiter or whatever. Like there's literally a button ah, at the okay. table for the restaurant where it's like, oh, I've been waiting so long for my food. You hit the button and like maybe it plays over the PA system and it's like <laughs> table 36 says, feed me, Seymour. <laughs> And then, and then there's parts where it's like maybe the Vox Lux uh, animatronic <laughs> stuff is going on, but you can't hear any of it because so many people are slamming on their feed me buttons. And it's like it's, it's like a cue. They're all backing up, but it's just playing feed me like eight hours after the restaurant closes. <laughs> all right. I can, I can dig that. Nice. I can dig that. 
right the best part is like it does it though, but because like, we don't have like the recording of somebody like of, of the voice saying like all the different numbers, so you'll hear the feed me, and then like in a generic like like sterile voice, they'll say table number thirty-seven. <laughs> like, feed me, like a Microsoft Sam or something. Yes, <laughs> yes, a very very like sterile voice. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> me. Table thirty-seven. This is some one kid just pushing the button all the time. It's like, it, and the problem is every time you push it, it resets. So like, it'll be, be like, feet, feet, feet. It'll just, it'll just keep repeating. So nice. eventually it's just feet, 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 feet. <laughs> eventually it just gets a People are going to be like, what is this? I'm getting a headache. And like, <laughs> once you order, you'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We're not too distracted by everything else in the restaurant. Yeah, there's, exactly. one, there's one thought like the, the wife's like, honey, that that f- f- sounds driving me crazy. And the father has like the bump of cocaine that you normally know, like, get on the way out. It's like, honey, I'm just fine. <laughs> <laughs> sounds fine to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. See, that's that the bonus. Crazy. You have to suffer through the restaurant so you can get the bump of cocaine at the end. Yep. Yeah. And the freak DVD, right? <laughs> that's the icing on the cake. Yes. <laughs> right on. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that was a good one. The feed me. Yeah, the feed me line. Absolutely. We need that. All right, Rob, how are we ending this episode? Well, Zach, I think I was going to ask you the same exact thing because I there's so much music in here that I want to play in reverse that, you know, the, the main theme, Steve Martin's dentist theme. I want to know what uh, Audrey's singing voice sounds like backwards with how crazy it is, you know, forwards and the, the, the effects he's putting on. So I, I'm all over the place, Zach. Was there anything that jumped into your head for ending? I think we should do a medley. Oh, okay, okay. I can get behind that. I don't know. We're recording this, like, what, a year before it releases? Will I have yes. enough time? I don't know. This episode doesn't come out until, like, May 2031, so maybe. <laughs> Will I have enough time to edit something? <laughs> no, I think that I think that sounds good. And I think in the, actually, if I recall correctly, the last song that plays in the theatrical release over the credits is a Little Shop of Horrors medley. So maybe I'll listen to that. I can come up with my own medley. Yeah, play around with it. And, of course, it'll all be in reverse. As it should be. Nice. Okay. Sold. Yeah, 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 yeah